0: What's up my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today we're talking about theme, but more specifically we're talking about themes that sell. We're talking about the themes that people just can't wait to get their hands on. They hear about the game, they don't know anything about it other than the theme and they want to play it. And we're talking to a guy that really knows what he's talking about, Mr. John Gilmore. John, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today.
0: Yeah, man, I am pumped to talk to you about this because you, you're one of those designers. You're in that top 1% or 2% in my mind of the guys that just know how to make a great game. You, you've designed some of my favorite games. Walk The uh, Dead of Winter is one of my favorite games of all time. I can't wait to play some of the other ones. I'm, I'm a backer of Kids on Bikes, and I can't wait to get my hands on that and check out that new RPG coming out, I think, March or April time period. But, man, just in case people have never heard of you, they don't know who John Gilmore is. Maybe they played your games but didn't know you made them. Uh, give me your bio. Who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that good stuff.
1: Well, uh, I got into game design probably about oh man, probably five or six years ago is when I started. I started doing print and play games at first and then I didn't, I wasn't going to look for publishers, but then when Isaac played Dead of Winter and wanted to co-design it uh, that kind of led me to working with publishers and you know looking at it as a you know, potential outlet instead of just doing print and play. Um, some of my games are, uh, Vault Wars, um, Dead of Winter, obviously, and the follow ups to that, uh, Wasteland Express, Delivery Service, Dinosaur Island, uh, Heroes and Tricks, and I'm forgetting something, uh, News at Eleven, and Kids on Bites. Those are kind of my big ones right now. I think this year I just hit my 10th published game.
0: Yeah, which is awesome. So five or six year time period, you've already had 10 games signed and published, and I I know you got more on the way too, right?
1: Yeah, I've got got another 30-ish in process right now.
0: (laughs) Wow, that's incredible. There is. Yeah, and so you're saying this just kind of started off as a print-and-play hobby?
1: Yeah, in fact, I was going to release Dead of Winter as a free print-and-play game on BGG. Wow. I was probably like a month away from letting it go as a print-and-play.
0: Yeah, that's incredible, man. And now, are, are you doing this full-time now? Yep,
1: I've been full-time for just about two years. I've been real lucky with Dead & Winter being a big hit. It's kind of giving me the freedom to uh, look at doing it as a full-time job. Now, I also live in rural Ohio, so the cost of living here is a little bit cheaper, so it allows me a little bit of freedom with that.
0: Yeah, that's really awesome. All right, so talk to me about your design Philosophy, like when you're when you're going into a game, you know, when you're trying to figure out the theme and how everything's going to come together, what is what's your mind doing? What are you what's your thought process?
1: Well, um, I describe it uh, because a lot of people will say that they're either theme first designers or mechanic first designers, and I consider myself an experience first designer, yeah. Which I think is different because I think to get somebody to really have an experience it's a combination of everything so that's where i start as i say like what experience do i want the players to have and what can i do to bring that out my favorite games are the ones where you know the mechanics and the theme and the art and everything is married together really closely so i personally just always try to start there and think yeah you know, how can i make my actions thematic how can i make my actions impactful. And how can I make it always feel like the players doing the things that I want them to feel like they're supposed to?
0: Be? Yeah, for sure. And I think that comes through in your games really well, just that experience. Because when when I play Dead of Winter, I really feel like that person next to me is going to stab me in the back, and he's going to burn us all to the ground. And you know, like it feels like that kind of post-apocalyptic zombie movie thing going on. And so, man, I'm I'm excited just to kind of get a little bit deeper. And so, you listed your games. I want to. I want to talk about like where you get ideas from, because it seems like you have your finger right to the pulse of pop culture of what's going on, and then you turn it into (laughs) a game. Because I mean, you know, pop culture. We've got The Walking Dead. You you made Dead of Winter. You've got Mad Max. You made Wasteland Express Delivery Service. Jurassic Park, Dinosaur Island, Stranger Things, Kids on Bikes, Game of Thrones, and coming out. I think I don't think it's out yet, but Path of Light and Shadow. Like you just seem to have games coming out constantly that are right in tune with what people are watching on Netflix, what people are watching at the movies. And so, like, where do you get your ideas from? Do you, did you just watch Stranger Things and go, oh, I'm going to make a game about that? Like, how does it, how does it all come together?
1: <laughs> so sometimes, uh, absolutely. So it's funny, like, some of them, we were working on Dinosaur Island uh, before they announced the new Jurassic Park movies. And we're working on uh, Waste on Express before they announced the new Mad Max so, like, those didn't happen because of those things, but they were inspired by my our, our love of those things existing. Yeah. Because like, I grew up watching all the Mad Max movies. So, even though Fury Road wasn't out yet, the older ones were definitely an influence. And with Dinosaur Island, um, i had been talking to Brian about uh, working together, and he had just walked by a store that had a sign in the window that said Dinosaur Island. Or, like, some kind of... I, I don't even know what it was for. And we had our phone call talking about the various designs that we had in process and he pulled this on and he was like, I don't know what this game is, but I want to make it.
0: Hmm.
1: I was like, absolutely. Like let's make the, the Jurassic park board game that nobody else. Did.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think, you know, that's the other thing is a lot of times it, that I try to do is make the game that I don't feel like other people are making. Hmm. Uh, you know, there's plenty of zombie games, and some of them are really good. You know, I feel like Last Night on Earth gives you the kind of campy zombie feeling. Yeah. And Zombicide gives you the Left for Dead, like, being awesome and blowing away zombies with a shotgun and chainsaw feeling. But I didn't feel like any of them were getting the, like, existential dread of, like, a good Romero zombie movie. Yeah. So I kind of said, well, how can we get that experience? Now other times it is like with uh Kids on bikes, hundred percent was Stranger Things uh came out and uh Doug posted on Facebook who wants to work on a Stranger Things board game. And I was like, hey, I'm already working on a Stranger Things board game. What if we do an RPG? Yeah. And then we went that route. You know, same with Dead Winter is inspired by my love for zombies.
0: Yeah. Now do you have like this giant notebook? Of ideas when you have you know when you see a, a hole in the market, so to speak, or you're looking around and looking for a game that you maybe you want to play and doesn't exist, do you just kind of have a big list of those things
1: I do and I, and I don't know I, I think I'm just very lucky at like picking what the next thing's going to be because I think it's it's kind of important to be like the first one,
0: yeah.
1: not necessarily the first one to market but the first one to really do something that feels different with it mm-hmm. You know, I feel like we we hit Kickstarter, and then, like, two weeks later, there's another Dinosaur game, and then Mondo announced the Jurassic Park game. Yeah. And I think, you know, if we had not been that first one with the Dinosaur theme park game, it wouldn't have been as successful. So, yeah, I do keep, I keep in Google Drive, I have a couple different things. I always keep a file of just random mechanics that I don't have a game for yet.
0: Yeah.
1: So I'm like, oh, this is a cool idea. What if I you know, did this in a game and I, you know, I'll slap those in there and then another ones of, you know, themes or other things. And sometimes we'll just, you know, like my friends and I will mishear each other and come up with game ideas based on that. We're like, did you just say torpedo Kitchen? Because that sounds <laughs> like a really fun game. I don't know anything about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I'm the same way. I've got a list of mechanisms that I really want to use in a game one day. No idea what game that's going to be. And so every now and then I'll get stuck in a design and I'll pull out that, that list and I'll go, okay, here's the stuff I really want to use. Does any of this work? And every now and then yeah. I'll pull something off that list and it works perfectly. Now, have there been any other like books or movies that have really inspired game designs? Even maybe some of the stuff you're working on now that you're like, man, I read this and it just really it, it said we need to make a game about it. Anything like that?
1: Man, I've been pretty lucky in that I've been able to tackle most of my absolute favorite things. Mm-hmm. I'd really like to do... I'm a huge fan of the, uh, the series of books called Saga of the Seven Suns. Okay. And it's, like, it's essentially Game of Thrones in space where it's just like sprawling space opera with lots of betrayal and stuff. I think I'd like to do a game like that at some point, but I don't know if I want to do a sprawling space game. Yeah. Because I think it's hard to yeah. topple the ones that are already so entrenched in the market. But then I played uh, Side Real Confluence, trading and negotiation in the Elysian Quadrant this year, and it just blows away every other sprawling space game. So I guess there's room for it.
0: Yeah, and I feel like in any theme, there's there's room kind of like with, with Dead of Winter. There were a million zombie games already, but then you took a different angle, a different approach, different perspective, and, and it it did really well. It was a huge hit. And so I feel like if you just are able to go at a, a theme, even Cthulhu or something like that that's been just done to death, if you figure out a different way to do it, you can have a lot of success. Now, what is your process when you're when you're sitting down and you're like, okay, I want to make a dinosaur, you know, Jurassic Park game. I want to make a zombie game. What is your process of really creating that experience? Like, how do you do it? Like, Do you have any kind of a system that you go through, or what do you do to create that experience in your games? I,
1: do, I don't have a... Set system and I probably should at some point, but a lot of times it's just you know, we'll sit down. We'll Because I almost exclusively co-design I think I only have two games that I didn't Work with another designer on mm-hmm. so you know, usually it's conversation between my other designers and I um Where we'll throw out like what do we think some mechanics are? Uh, that will tie in well thematically and help communicate the experience and then I'm a huge proponent of the fail faster design philosophy. So usually it'll be like, we'll talk about component or talk about mechanics for about half an hour and then put something on the table and try it. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't communicate the experience we want, we'll strap that and try something different.
0: Yeah, definitely. And now with co-designing, have you found that really helps when you have that other person you can you can lean on and, and bounce ideas around that really helps with the experience and bringing it out?
1: I think so. I mean, the the bad part is is that you know, the margins are already not great on board games, so you're making half as much or a third as much on any game. But I think the benefit is that, you know, A, I like lifting other people up with me with my uh, success, and B, I think it's easier to have somebody else to help, you know, keep me honest because if I work in a vacuum – like I like people to tell me that my ideas aren't great when they're not great. Yeah. And if it's just me, I have a hard time filtering that sometimes.
0: Yeah, definitely. I've talked to other designers that, that work in teams, and they talk about the accountability. Just having that other person across the table to say, no, that's not a good idea. Let's not do that. And then to be able to work through issues is just a really uh, good bonus to have.
1: And somebody, especially like before you're dealing with a publisher, somebody to say, hey, we should probably work on this now. It's been a week. <laughs> right.
0: Definitely. And so, what does your co-design process look like? Do you do you work with people that are local, or do you have to go on? You know, work through stuff online. What do you do to, to work with people on games?
1: I do both, and it's it's a little bit easier for me since I'm full time because you know I'm I'm here in the office until like two or three a.m. Yeah. So if I'm working from with somebody from you know a different part of the world, it's not quite so bad for me to you know hop on at two a.m. bone doll. I think remote's a little bit harder because if it's someone that I can sit down with it's easier for us to like get together try the game reiterate things and then put it back on the table right away.
0: Yeah.
1: I worked with uh Peter Hayward from uh Jellybean Games this last year and like he just came down and stayed here for a week which was you know awesome because it was you know a full week of us you know just trying stuff reiterating it put it back on the table over and over again.
0: Yeah.
1: So I think in person tends to work better. It also tends to mean that it's easier for them to motivate me on it because we'll just meet up, and then I have a, you know, pretty strict due date to get things done by.
0: Yeah. Now, what is your process of keeping track of all these things? You said you got like 30 games in process right now. You're working with co-designers, and so like, how in the world do you keep all this all this figured out where it doesn't just become chaos?
1: Uh, it, it becomes chaos. <laughs> i not. I wish I was better at project management. Yeah, I try to keep a pretty organized Google Drive so I can hop from project to project pretty easy. But a lot of it, especially once things get to a publisher, it's whoever's yelling the most that day gets the attention. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, but my my five year goal is to cut back some once and once I feel like things are a little bit more stable. And I don't have to just throw like six games out a year to try to make sure that one does well. You know, I hope to be able to slow down a little bit and that portion will become easier.
0: Gotcha. So you're still in that stage of just grinding right now and just trying to get as much done as you can.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, I, it's the, the self employed thing. Like, I still work 70 hours a week. I just get to decide what 70 hours I work. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's not a, uh, it's not an. E- and it's still not easy because I'm still spending a ton of hours at the office every. week.
0: Yeah, but definitely.
1: yeah you know, it's fun and it's worthwhile.
0: Right, and I, th- I think that's something that a lot of people who say I want to be a full time game designer, I want to work full time in the industry, they they, I feel like they come into it with like rose colored glasses and they think it's just going to be playing games all day, and it's it's work. And so I tell yeah. you what, talk to me a little bit about that, like what you ran into when you went full time a couple years ago, when you ran into this is my job, like. What were some of the things that like surprised you, or you weren't expecting?
1: Um, I think you know I tried to go into it. the The thing that scared me the most when I talked with my, uh, you know, wife and friends about going full time was that when I went into the computer industry, which is kind of what I did previously, like I didn't enjoy using a computer as a hobby anymore. Yeah, because it's what I did all day. So I was very much worried that I wouldn't love the hobby that I was in love with once I started doing it as a job. Um, So that was definitely the scariest thing. But I went into it knowing that to get Dead of Winter out and a couple of my other earlier games, um, I was still working like 60 to 70 hours a week at a factory and then putting the extra time into game design. Yeah. So I knew that once I pivoted and went full time game design, I was still going to have to put that many hours into it or close to it, but just focusing on pushing through and trying to get things done. And I also knew I, I had the benefit of when I went full time, like I had a success like Dead of Winter and then I had a success like Vault Wars. And both are successful, but they're two entirely different things. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas you know, Vault War went, through, you know, Vault Wars was a twenty-five dollar game and went through like two five thousand copy printings, which is super successful in the industry. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to do like one or two of those games a year and be sustainable. Yeah, like to do the smaller games, I have to do you know a bunch of those every year. And in fact, like for the most part, I try not to do too many smaller games anymore, just because. Financially, they're not as viable as big box
0: games. Yeah, and I think that's something that you know designers that want to go full time really need to be aware of and think through that. You know, if you if you sell ten thousand ten dollar games, that's awesome, but you're not making hardly anything off of that. As opposed to selling yeah. a few thousand eighty dollar games, you know, and just thinking through how how the business of things works. Yeah,
1: definitely. You know, I've learned a lot more over the last few years, especially talking to people. Other people in the industry, like Kevin Wilson, is going to be a ton of great advice about, how, you know, how he manages his name design business and things like that. So, you know, I think I always try to you know, keep in mind that I'm, I'm not the smartest person in the room ever, and I don't like to be. So, like, learning from the other people that do this is super important.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, any of that advice that you'd like to pass along to somebody listening right now?
1: The big thing you know, Kevin Wilson's a different you know, a completely different experience than mine. Um, because you know, he started at Fantasy Flight, and then when he left Fantasy Flight, like he already had a decent level of success. He always demands a decent upfront um advance so that even if the game doesn't do well, like he can make sure that every year he's making what he needs to survive in advances.
0: Right.
1: If the game does mm-hmm. well then that's great. That's just extra money at that point. I tend to at this point I've always like passed on advances to try to get more on the back end. Cuz I you know hope that the game's super successful, but I think you know what he said has really made me rethink that.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a whole lot of sense. And Kevin Wilson, if anybody's not familiar, if I'm not mistaken, he did Descent, right? Yeah, yeah, Descent, and a whole bunch of other games. And so one thing that really helped him was he was already somebody when he went kind of off on his own, right? And so you, you—I don't want to call you a nobody, but you were no, you were an unknown going into this. No, I, I'm still I'm
1: still a very small fish in this industry.
0: Yeah. And so what advice would you give somebody who's just, I mean, who's a nobody, who's unknown? Somebody like me, somebody who's like, who has no published (laughs) games yet, who's working, you know, grinding, trying to get something done, wanting to maybe turn this into something one day. What would you, what would you say to somebody like that?
1: I think the most important thing is to treat it like a business and go into it like that. When you are dealing with publishers, you know, treat them like you would, you know, a business contract, a business contract, Business contacts, sorry, uh that you know you'd be dealing with at any other job. Don't just show up to a convention with your prototype and say, Hey, I want you to play this because at a convention that's when they're making money, like they're working right then. You yeah. wouldn't just go up to a business and do that. You know, email ahead of time and you know, make contacts in the industry and you know I hate I hate to say leverage those contact contacts because that just sounds so corporate and awful, but you know, making making friends in the industry helps because it just makes it easier to meet
0: other people. Yeah, definitely. And just, I mean, this is how the world works. I mean, every job I've ever gotten was because I knew somebody. And every job of anybody I know it's because they knew somebody, and so that's just the way the world works as you build relationships and then good things happen out of that. And like you said, this is a business, this is an industry, and so treat it as such. And so let me ask you, kind of staying on that track of the business, you know you mentioned that you're married, but you also mentioned that you hang out at the office till two or three o'clock in the morning. And so like, let's talk about that, that balance of how you you know, manage that work-life balance. and, and you know, is, is your wife super supportive of this? Is she like one of your main play testers, or, or how does it work?
1: <laughs> she's she's not a huge fan of playtesting. She loves to play games, um, but she likes to play games that are good. <laughs> <laughs> typically, uh, prototypes are not good. Yeah. Um, she you know she playtested Dead Winter a few times, and if I'm in a crunch, she'll playtest something. I know high praise from her is typically I don't hate this game <laughs> because she's super honest. I'm like oh well, Jamie doesn't hate it. It's probably a good game, and I should get it published. I'm super lucky to have a very understanding family. You know, one that lets me go to conventions because, like, last year I went to 15 conventions mm. trying to support this. I'm going to come back a little bit this year, but that's a lot of time away from your family. Yeah. And, you know, I spend a lot of time in my office. I try to... I do try to always keep weekends for my family, which means more work during the week. Um, And I think that's a good you know,
0: part of the balance. Yeah, definitely. So per- just protecting that time whenever you can. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it one one of the biggest questions I get from, from listeners, from people around on the internet, and they say, I don't know how to prioritize my game design time. I just never have time during the week. I never can seem to get things done. And so let's back up before you were full time and you were working a normal job and doing the game design thing. How were you making time? Like, how did you process that? How did you, you know, create some kind of system or whatever during the week to make sure game design happened?
1: It's bad advice that I'm going to give, but, I mean, the option was don't sleep. Like, there's just no other way. Like, if I, you know, if I work a 10-hour day and then come home, have supper and some time with the family, the kids go to bed at, like, 8 or 9 o'clock, I know I have to be up at 7 in the morning, but from 10 until, like, 2 a.m. is when I have to do the game design and then try to get a few hours of sleep and go back to it.
0: Yeah.
1: There's nothing wrong. in In fact, I think it's better if people approach game design as a hobby instead of a career, hmm. because the amount of work that it takes to go from just being a hobby game designer to a career game designer is a lot. And it's, it's, it's stressful because you know, like I get, I get paid quarterly. So that, that's a horrible way to survive. There's a lot of people that do it and a lot of people just can't, you know, budget that way or, you know, survive. So I think you know I think it's totally okay for people to say like I just want to do this as a hobby I don't care you know how often I get games published like I just want to do this creatively as an outlet and get my name on a couple boxes and that's totally fine.
0: All right. Let's switch gears and go back into the the theme. You know, the the main topic of the show. And so, are there certain mechanisms that just work really well with certain themes that you found? Like, like for instance, in dead of you know, dead of winter, post apocalyptic. That whole hidden traitor mechanic just works really well in a post apocalyptic game. Like it just really evokes that theme. Any other mechanisms that you found that just really lend themselves to certain themes?
1: Um, I always like to get surprised by mechanisms because. I I really think that there isn't definitely like in trader kind of fits into any kind of survival slash horror situation. Um, But other than that, like I think it'd be crazy to play a worker placement horror game. If somebody could pull that off
0: Yeah,
1: and it may make perfect sense to do that. I like trying to do weird things like at, at its heart, Dead of Winter was the the core mechanic of the dice allocation was inspired by Feld and Castles of Burgundy. Mm -hmm. So like it's really a little bit of a euro at its base, which isn't something that would typically be the way a zombie survival game would work. So I think it's, it's always cool, and I always feel very delighted when I play a game that surprises me with its mechanics. I think it's more important to go the opposite direction and say... You know, try to think of something surprising to evoke the emotions that you want to evoke.
0: Yeah, that's a really cool way to look at it. All right, let's let's talk about your playtesting process. You you talked about it before. You you tend to make bigger games now, meteor heavier games that are super thematic, super experiential. How do you playtest that? How do you how do you playtest it and then really find out is this experience coming out the way I want it to?
1: Um, one of the things that I think really helps with that is I try to always make my games play good to players because it's much easier for me to uh, play test with just my co-designer or just get one other person to hang out for the night and play some games. I'm lucky in that we have a group that meets up every Thursday night that, you know, we're all, it's all local designers. So I can pretty much get anything to the table that I need to, but I really only can get like one game a week so that I don't, you know, it's not just the the John show at playtest night. It's everybody's got stuff to playtest. Um, so that helps me get things pushed through playtesting as well. A lot of it is that I try to work with publishers that I know will also, A, playtest it internally, and B, set up big playtesting groups. With Dead of Winter, we kind of convinced Flat Hat make a pretty major change in the way that they were playtesting things and we got a hundred groups to playtest the game
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um which is kind of unheard of like there's not there weren't many people in the industry doing big playtests like that so that is very useful to me like with the dinosaur island expansion we're you know signing people up today to do playtests for that so working with a publisher that'll help is important too
0: yeah, that's Another a great way. great point. Now, what do your notes look like? Or do you even take notes while watching a playtest trying to figure out, okay, is the experience coming through the way I want it to?
1: Uh, I do take notes. I'm really bad at uh, keeping track of my notebook. So I've kind of switched to doing everything right in Google Drive now. So like, now I just I'll go directly in and I keep a notes document in each folder for every game and then just type everything directly in there. I usually I like to sit back. like I think it's real bad to be a hover plate uh designer where you'll just like do things for the players Mm -hmm. so i tend to just sit back and watch and you know write down things that i notice essentially it's tough to learn what feedback to listen to and what feedback not to. and i think it's better to error into writing down every piece of feedback but not listening to all of them
0: yeah that's a great point how do you determine which is which
1: a lot of times is is I try to divide things into two categories of do I think that this is an isolated incident thing? Is it just the microcosm of this one game that we played, or is this something that I'm repeatedly seeing in playtests? Because if I see it in like three games in a row, then it's definitely an issue. If it's just one player says it, like it's really tough for playtesters to not tell you and especially if you're playtesting with other designers, uh, to not just tell you the changes that they want to make the game that they want to design or that they want to play. So, you know, the next thing, the next filter I kind of use is, is this within the vision of the game that I want? Like, yeah, it would be really great if I changed this entire portion of the game to a blind bid auction, but that's not the game. Like, right now, that's not the way I want it to be. So I think staying true to your vision is important, and using that as a filter is good.
0: Yeah, now when you're right from the beginning, when you're getting into a design, do you write down that vision? I've talked to other designers that say they like write a mission statement for the game, so to speak. Do you kind of do something like that or at least have a very solid idea right from the beginning?
1: I usually start with a pretty big ideas document where we kind of just throw everything in. And usually at the beginning of that is a couple, like a few sentence write-up of like, the elevator pitch for the game and I and I try to stick to that um it definitely changes one of the games that I've been working on way too long to get right is uh it's called Space Farmers and at first it was a worker placement game and like it's changed so many times that it's nothing like that original game
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so I like to keep it in mind but it's not it's definitely not the core recipe like that can change
0: yeah like you haven't written it down in blood or anything yeah. <laughs> now, talking about playtesting and you're know, working on these big thematic games, what are what's your advice to somebody who's working on one like that and trying to figure out how to scale it? You talked about how you you like to design games that work well with two players there at the beginning, but when you're scaling the game, have you found anything that works really well in figuring out how to scale it up to the five players, four or five?
1: A lot of the scaling that I do is based more on feeling than anything else. in in observation and just trying to like you can pretty easily play a game with a different player count and just see like okay we're not going to need as many of these tiles as what we do in the five player game so what should we go through and eliminate and sometimes it's a balance, sometimes it's real clear like if I have four copies of this same tile in a four player game I'll just put two of them in for a two player game I don't think I have a good set formula for it. I think more it's more feel
0: than anything. Gotcha. Just test it and test it again and then test it some more. Yeah. All right. So talk to me about the difference in playtesting a deeply thematic board game versus a deeply thematic RPG. What have you found in, in working with kids on bikes and playtesting that thing?
1: Kids on bikes is definitely a lot harder to playtest. Hmm. Um, it was the first... RPG I ever really designed. Um I'd messed around with a few in high school, but it was all just like essentially just reskinning existing garbage. Right. It's a, a super entirely different beast because you're not just talking about like a two hour play session, you're talking about like a four hour PlayStation session. The best thing that we did is we would try to play test it at conventions. Because it's easy for us to like send out a message to friends and be like, hey, do you want to meet up one night after the convention closes and sit through and play a four-hour session? We also leveraged Metatopia uh, really well to focus test very specific parts of it. Because Metatopia kind of breaks everything down to two-hour sessions. So we would say, okay, well, we're just going to test character and town creation and not actually play the game. Um, We're just going to try to do the setup portion of it. Or, okay, we're going to do pre-created characters, pre-generated scenario, and we're just going to hop into playing this very short thing. So if you have something that's really big and sprawling, like there's nothing wrong with just playtesting very specific parts of
0: it. Yeah, that's a great point. Did you also like run through a long campaign where you just had the same people coming back over and over and over again and running hours and hours and hours of campaign?
1: We're lucky because it's not, like, super built for campaign play. You can play that way, but it, there's not... Because it's kind of modeled after movies and TV shows like Stranger Things and Goonies, like, there's not a lot of character development in those kind of movies. Like, Stranger Things, like, nobody really levels up in between seasons. Yeah. Everybody's just a little bit older. And that's a more realistic thing, so we... We built it that you could play a persistent story with the same group in the same town, but there isn't a ton of leveling up happens. So we played a couple reoccurring campaigns of it, but it, it wasn't anything we had to focus on.
0: Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Instead of playing out the lifetime of your adventurer in D and D, you just play out a season of these kids in this small town. It makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, and if you meet up again, I mean, there's no reason that can't be the same kids the next summer. Like nobody. Teenagers, we don't learn a lot. Like, (laughs) no doubt, (laughs) we think we do, but
0: right. Uh, The quote I read a long time ago struck me as funny back then, but very real now. Especially because I teach teenage kids every day. It was. It's a. When I was thirteen, my dad knew nothing. When I turned twenty, he knew everything. It's amazing how much he (laughs) learned in seven
1: years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would not want to play kids on bikes to the point of my kids becoming adults. It would just be depressing.
0: Absolutely, all right, so you've got so many games going on, you've got so many games that have come out or are in the process of coming out. How do you know when a game is done? How do you know when that theme is done? the experience is ready to go when when do you just say okay, check it, check it off the list. Let's move on to the next thing.
1: I don't ever think my games are done um and I'm really bad at that. I try to the big qualifier is how many changes am I making per iteration? Like if I'm going like 10, if I'm doing like five to 10 play tests and not making anything between like, besides like little balance changes, then I think that's close enough. Like when I go into bigger play testing that, that all the balance stuff will get figured out easily because I'll have more data to pull on it. Um, if I'm making like huge changes in between play tests, it's not even close to red. And sometimes it'll come down to, like, I'm stuck on direction for this game. It could go in, like, one of two different ways. And I just need to find a publisher to figure out which direction they want to take it. Hmm. like, I could be at a point where this game could be medium weight or it could be a heavy game. And I don't know which one of those is better for.
0: Yeah, definitely. And on the opposite side of that, how do you know when to shelf a game? When to just step back and go, okay, I'm stuck. I'm not getting anywhere. Let's let's work on something else for a while.
1: The minute I feel frustrated and stuck on a game, it goes on the shelf.
0: Yeah. If I,
1: if I playtest it and I sit there and I'm like, I don't know what to do with this game next, shelve it. then you back up six to eight months later, you'll be a better designer by that point.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I guess that's also the the good thing about having twenty or thirty games in process. There's there's always something to go to. It's not like you're just working on one thing. You've got a lot of options, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I got plenty of stuff I can shelf and pull off the shelf. So
0: now we nice talk to me about working with a co designer though, and when you feel like it's time to shelf it, does that have to be a team decision or like how do you, how do you kind of work through when to shelf a game when you're working with somebody else?
1: Uh, I always just have a pretty earnest discussion with them and and say, hey, listen. Like I, I'm not sure the direction on this. Like, if you have ideas, then go ahead and make whatever changes you want. Like, if you want to take the wheel for a little while, and try something, do it. And like, I'll, I'll gladly let somebody else try whatever they like with the game. Or like, if, if I say, you know, listen, I feel stuck, and they like, say, well, what if we try this? Then that's fine. But if we both feel that we don't know what to do with it the next, then it just needs to work on something else. And sometimes I, and I, I try to say, like, okay, well, let's show this and let's work on this other project. You know, I try not to just say, hey, listen, I'm, I don't want to work with you anymore.
0: <laughs> right, and are you, are you finding yourself working with the same co-designers over and over again for a lot of games?
1: I mean, I'm always trying to find new people and especially people who don't have the same opportunities as I do in the industry to work with. Uh, but I do tend to work with the same people if I feel like the things that we're doing are successful and work. Uh, if it's somebody I work well with together with, it just made sense to keep working.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool, man. Do you have any other advice for somebody who right now is working on a really thematic game, a really big experience game? What advice would you give them?
1: I think the best advice is anything that doesn't further the experience, just cut from your game. If you see something in your game that you feel like takes players even a little bit out of the thing, whether it's an upkeep or an action or something else, cut it and try it without it. Um, There's a good chance that your game is not going to suffer for cutting that.
0: Yeah, no, that's great advice. Awesome, John. Man, I really appreciate you coming on the show. We're about to go over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about post-apocalyptic games. It's John's favorite theme, one of his favorite experiences to evoking games. I think you see that in some of the games he's already put out. and I'm pretty sure there's some more on the shelf that he's working on right now that are in this post-apocalyptic world and landscape. And John, man, really, thanks, thanks for coming on the show. Good luck with everything you got going on right now.
1: Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks for listening.